Let Him Go Barefoot is a podcast that dives into all things parenting and education through the lens of mindful awareness. Conversations aim to bring forward patterns, beliefs, and attitudes that shape our expectations and ideas about what it means to raise healthy children. With the blend of science, ancient wisdom, and intuition, we will explore ways to support, nurture, and connect with our growing children while also nurturing and expanding ourselves. I am grateful you are here. According to Dina, a holistic and integrative health coach, we all have a food story. However, many of us have not brought this story forward. We may not even realize why we have certain attitudes about food or how particular beliefs around health and eating have influenced us. In this episode, Dina and I discuss many ideas and beliefs around food, including personal stories that have impacted our relationship with nutrition and food over the years, but also how we can bring peace, joy, and beauty into our homes and meals while minimizing struggle and challenges. Here's my conversation with Dina Barsala. So my name is Dina Barsala. I live in Encinitas, California, which is part of San Diego County in Southern California. And I live with my husband and my son. And my son is almost seven years old, which is so hard to believe already. (laughs) And um, I am a holistic and integrative health coach. So what that means is that I approach food and health and the body from a holistic, meaning looking at the whole body and all aspects of health from that, from, you know, organs and systems that the the orchestration and the interplay between everything that goes on in the body but also the mind body connection the spiritual element so the holistic a holistic approach to health really looks at the, that all systems in the body interact and they don't they don't exist in silos for one so the digestive system has an interaction with the hormonal system which has an interaction with the brain we look at the brain the mind body connection and then also looking at more spiritual elements or metaphysical elements there's so many ways that you can look at holistic health and then integrative really means that we're bringing all different modalities together so that might be ayurveda that could be traditional chinese medicine that could be many different modalities and of course including western medicine or mainstream medicine so it's looking at things from an integrative and a holistic perspective and for me that was key because i grew up having a lot of different health conditions health issues health hiccups along the way um, that started when I was a when I was a small child having chronic digestive issues and then into my teen years that was representing as more hormonal issues and then I had a low thyroid I had polycystic ovarian syndrome I have a couple of different um, autoimmune conditions that are the uh, autoimmune diagnoses so it was really, really important for me to understand how to take care of my body. And that is what really brought me into learning Mm -hmm. more about a functional medicine model, learning more about integrative medicine, because for so long, for decades, I was just going to one different specialist for one different thing going on. So that was more of kind of more of my health body journey from that perspective. And then also... I grew up in a home with um, a mother and a grandmother and aunts and cousins and friends' mothers. Every single influence that I had from women in my life were women who did not have a positive 
joyful, really understanding relationship with food. And I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, and every single woman that I was around was either on a diet or off the diet and quote unquote cheating, lots of air quotes around these terms, and then getting ready to get back on a diet. So that is what, you know, when we talk about natural learning, we talk about the feeling that comes in. We talk about just the 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 lessons that we that we glean, the things that we learn from the environment around us. And that was very much what I learned. Not necessarily explicitly stated towards me. No one was telling me I needed to go on a diet. No one was telling me I needed to, you know, whatever it was, lose weight, eat less calories, watch my fat intake. That was that was never explicitly said to me, but it was something as a highly sensitive person, I was very attuned to what all of these women were doing around me. And that is what I learned. And I developed an eating disorder when I was a teenager, around 13, 14. And that went on for also a few decades. And for me, that looked a lot like binging on food to kind of fill a void, to fill me up, to to feel things more strongly that now I understand looking back. And then I would purge my food. So I would throw up and, you know, people know this as bulimia. And that was something that was part of my life for quite a long time. And, you know, it was very much an interplay between the disordered eating and those patterns and my health journey. And so there was a lot of messages and a lot of feelings around that my body was betraying me, that whether it was digestive Mm -hmm. issues or quote unquote, sudden weight gain or bloat or whatever it was. I, you know, I had times when my hair was falling out, when I felt extremely fatigued in my twenties, where I I lived in New York city at the time. And I remember struggling to walk up the stairs of the subway, you know, carrying groceries or carrying whatever I was. And that felt like such, such a burden. And it was so hard for me to do because my, it felt like my body was betraying me. And you were how old then you said? That was in my twenties. So this was, you know, like my late, my mid to later 20s. So that was already, let's say, 12 to 15 years into disordered eating. Mm-hmm. It was 20 some odd years of having chronic digestive issues, of hormonal imbalance, not feeling well. So all of these things really started to come to a head for me in my later 20s when I started to learn more about integrative health. Uh, it's when I had my first health coach and I started understanding food psychology differently, the relationship with food differently. And I just started to awaken to a new way of looking at the body, of understanding the body, of loving the body, and finding different practitioners and ways in which I could actually support my body holistically, Mm -hmm. as I was saying at the beginning. And it's, you know, it's been a journey, but I'll say that over the years, for me, being pregnant and then becoming a mother really catapulted me into wanting to have a different relationship with food, wanting to be able to nurture my child without a lot of heaviness around food. You know, what I find in all the people that I work with is that we all have our food story. We Mm -hmm. all have, you know, especially if you've had a tumultuous relationship with food, we all have this experience that we've gone through with food that is informed by so many different things, so many different influences. And then we become parents mm-hmm. and we're there to manage and oversee and, you know, be the influencer around 
food for our children, you know, a primary one in those in those very early years, right? So, and it starts from day one. It starts with, are you breastfeeding or are you bottle feeding? Mm-hmm. Are you doing it on a schedule? Are you doing it on demand? Are you doing this formula or that formula? Like, how are you nourishing yourself to optimize breast milk? Like every single thing, it starts right away. And it feels like a lot of pressure for a lot of people mm-hmm. who have had this tumultuous relationship with food. Well, there's so – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to say that's that's really what, what I think started to open up a completely different paradigm for me, even though I had already – I'd already become an integrative health cho- coach. I'd already – gotten deep into learning about the body in so many different ways over several years prior to becoming a mother. I'd healed a lot of my own hormonal imbalance. I healed, I healed low thyroid, you know, for, with more natural modalities. My, my immune, my autoimmune diagnoses were really like on the dimmer. They were really um, kind of more dormant and all of these different things had started to get better. And then becoming a mother shifted that profoundly. And then a couple of years later, my mother passed away. Mm. And it be- that was like the gigantic, you know, explosion for me. I mean, on many levels, but when it comes to the relationship with food, it was clear to me that my mom carried the burden of a tumultuous relationship with food to her grave. Mm. And I didn't want that for myself Mm-hmm. at all anymore. I didn't want that for women I knew. And and that is, you know, that is what I'm here to support people with, to, to break down all of these things that we think are the way we have to relate to food and come into a much more joyful and loving and con- confident existence there. That's, oh my goodness, Dina, there's so many things that I could go, so many directions I could go with what you've shared in terms of how the food story begins super, super early. And it makes sense that it does because food is integral to our existence. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's in every single part of our lives. It's something that we use to celebrate. It's something that we use to make ourselves feel better. People sometimes use it as punishment. And um, it's very much an integral part of everything that we do. So it makes sense that it's, everybody has a food story. I am very curious about the ways in which the messaging that you received as a child, how, and you, and you mentioned too, that you were a sen- more sensitive. So you were more aware mm-hmm. of those things. So nobody said anything necessarily directly to you, but you, right. you took those examples that were presented to you in your immediate circle and you digested those. So you digested that information, even though you were not told directly. So I'm just wondering like that thread of, what you saw with the women in your circle, did you also notice the way that men were behaving around food too? Or do you feel like you really honed in on the women and took those messages a little bit more personally? Yeah, I'll say for me, I was raised by a single mom. My father was was just never really in the picture growing up. And I do have an older brother, but he's much older. He's five years older than I am. And it it was almost like we had different childhoods and I, that's there's a lot more to say there but for sure. the sake of this uh and it's also very interesting that many women in my family were divorced okay. so very often i would only be exposed to the women mm-hmm. but i you know in thinking back i can think about my grandfather and a, also a very 
strict, rigid relationship with food around he would eat exactly this at exactly the same time and 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 not really having any joy mm-hmm. in that experience. And so a lot of it was food either as just we just eat and it's fuel and it's just what you do or it was a, a very like kind of bingy overgo overdoing relationship. Mm-hmm. So it was like all rules are off the table or we are and I love the I love how we have all of these like you you said you digested mm-hmm. this information and you <laughs> like off the table. You you start to see how there's so many food metaphors. But it was either like the very rigid, I'm on the strict rules or there are no yeah. rules. Right. Well, and I personally have had many, many conversations about food and around food, and it has certainly impacted my life as far as um, earlier on. I was had gotten very sick as a as a little girl around third grade, and um, and then twice as a before that I had mononucleosis, and so I was out of school for a while. I had a homebound tutor and everything because I just couldn't. I had no energy. I couldn't even like talk on the phone for very long and couldn't see my friends because I just couldn't move around very much. And um, eventually, you know, got better and healthier and, and was able to go back to school. But that's when the food world became crashing down on me because the doctors told my mom she needs to eat these sorts of foods and not these sorts of foods. And I'm a, from a Southern family where fried foods are just mm-hmm. part of life and, um, you know, cakes and desserts and um, we had a lot of joy around food. I, I do recall many, many instances of being with our families and just enjoying food together. So I do feel like I had joy around food, but it became really obvious when I got sick that there was something more to just opening a pack of food and eating it, you know, that it was nourishing my body or not yeah. nourishing my body. And then over time, I became acutely aware of it, especially when I got into college and um, was noticing, well, actually, I'd say actually before that, even high school, I was getting migraines and I started noticing some connections between what I was eating and how that was affecting my body. And then eventually um, I got a couple of episodes to the point where I went to a neurologist and I, I asked the neurologist, I, this, will, this is one of the most pivotal moments of my, of my life. I sat with the neurologist and I looked at her in the face and I said, do you think the things I'm eating are affecting the way I'm feeling? And she cocked her head and kind of looked at me like, Mm-mm. no, and <laughs> no, there's no way that's I, possible. <laughs> and that moment I was like, I am really confused. And I think I need to start doing a little bit more of my own reading and digging. Yeah. And, uh, and sure enough, I uncovered quite a bit. And then eventually um, my parents, both of them, two separate, like within a year apart, were both diagnosed with type two diabetes. Um, and so, yeah, it, it it's yeah. It, food is very much a part of everything, but the nutritional side of it certainly grew in importance and also in making sure I understood the foundations of it. Yes. So when I became pregnant, it was. I was all into just trying to learn everything I could about what am I putting in my body? How am I feeling about my body? And all of those things to ensure that I was creating the the best womb-like environment for my baby to thrive and grow in. Yeah. Um, so when you said too about, you know, your own particular experiences with food and stress, I mean, that's one of the things that we know very clearly 
that high levels of stress and fear actually block our hunger and cause it cause us not to even digest our food properly, right. or it just makes us not even hungry. So you can see how earlier instances of stress and worry or living in like a chaotic environment and not really quite sure if you're feeling safe, how it would impact how you eat. And you might just eat something quickly just because you feel like you need some nutrition and you need you know, your blood sugar's low or whatever, and you're not thinking about how it's actually impacting your body. So what have you found to be helpful for families if they are going through sort of a stressful time and how can they avoid falling into a pitfall of just eating anything and everything? Yeah, I love that question. And I love that you're highlighting that, especially in these times. You know, I think that a lot of people just don't realize that you know, pe- people frame this this term emotional eating in just a negative light. Mm. Like there's this, like oh, I want to I want to get over being an emotional eater. Or I used to be an emotional eater, or I have a problem with emotional eating. Right? We we put this concept of emotional eating into this bucket of that's that's like a pathology. It's a problem. It's a diagnosis, or you know, of sorts. And food is emotional, mm-hmm. and I think it's really important for people to recognize that we crave certain foods, we're drawn to certain things as they feel like they will either support an emotional experience we're having or they will you know, further highlight an emotional experience we're having. They help us process emotions the same way. I mean, food is an extremely sensory experience, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're taking something and you're putting it in your mouth. Like sometimes I need to visually really bring this to light for people because it's something that we we just take for granted yeah. as it, you know, just, oh, it's just something I do. But you're actually putting something into your body. Mm-hmm. And so if you're putting something into your body, you of course it's going to impact how your body feels, right? So sometimes people are drawn to more crunchy foods or chewy foods when they feel like they need to process some emotion, hmm. a lot of like anger or frustration. That's why you, the the classic example of someone like sitting on a couch going through a whole bag of chips, if they're either feeling frustrated, angry, or maybe just maybe bored and it gives you something to do, right? Hmm. When we talk about, if you think about classic comfort foods, they're like mac and cheese or a casserole or ice cream, things that t- typically are like creamy, soft, those kinds of things for people because they they go in and they coat the throat and they're, they feel soothing to the body. It's almost like a blanket or a hug hmm. for the body. And, the, and, you know, we know this from reading things and learning about child development and these primitive reflexes and these, these primitive behaviors that our babies have, right? Like you, you see evolution at play mm-hmm. when you observe a baby. And so these things are just part of the human experience. And as we get older, we train ourselves out of these things. But emotional eating or eating eating something that feels soothing or eating something that helps you process something that's going on for you, it starts very, very, very early on. And for some people that goes into more of a of a looks more like what we think of as disordered eating when we talk more about the control piece, all the ways that we want to control what we're eating. And, and then that can get into more of an extreme dieting phase as someone mm-hmm. gets older, right? But it's all there and it's all something that we can work with if we yeah. understand it. And that is what I, you know, that's where I support parents to be able to understand and tune in with the emotional experience of a child and for themselves as well. Like everything we're talking about here is 
for the mother, for the father. My One of my favorite things is when I get to work with the, a, a couple, if there is a couple dynamic, and then be able to see, oh, wow, I'm putting all this emphasis on my child, but these things are totally true for myself mm-hmm. as well. So when we can start to observe those behaviors and we can understand those tendencies, again, you know, for the sake of this conversation, making the making the comparisons to natural learning, we will we'll know if our child optimally learns certain things mm-hmm. in the earlier part of the day or the later part of the day. Do they learn better in nature? Do they learn better sitting at a table? Do they learn better with a certain app or from a book? Do, are they more of a tactile learner? Are they more of an auditory learner, right? We can break down all of these different things when we're observing our children and creating an optimal environment for them. And the exact same thing goes for an optimal eating environment, right? We have an optimal Mm -hmm. learning environment. We have an optimal eating environment. And so being able to to see when a child is feeling really frustrated and then maybe how they're eating or what they're drawn to, like this, this observation and curiosity phase is always step one, right? Like when we talk about de-schooling, we, we, we are stepping back and we are just taking some time to observe and allow ourselves come into a new paradigm. And we need to do that with food as well. For sure. And yes, you're what you're you're making that connection between learning and how when you bring to your awareness of what it is that you're seeking out to learn or even paying more attention to how you learn and where you like to be and who you like to learn with, all of those things can be applied, of course, to food and to eating. And I know I've seen this personally and also just witnessed it in in just being alive and interacting with p- other people. There's a lot of times that our, we bring our own, in, um, I wouldn't say injuries, we bring our own misconceptions and maybe even our attitudes towards food into our parenting relationship. And until we can bring that forward and really pay attention to the relationships that we've created around food and the attitudes we have about eating and and our fears as well, like what are we so afraid of? Yes. What is it about food that causes us to be concerned or worried? And how are we presenting that to our children? Even if we're not saying it out loud, just like your experience, you you pick up on things when you're not even trying to necessarily because you're not aware of it. Yes. Um, so like if we tell our children, oh, you can't have dessert until you clean your plate. You got to be part of clean your plate club. I mean, that used to make me feel like yeah. nails on a chalkboard yeah. because I knew that what we're really saying is you need to overeat in order to get something that we value as sweet or that we think is, yes. um, you know, a reward. And, and instead it's not allowing the child to listen to their body to and say, yeah. and I'm actually full. Yes. No, I didn't eat all of those green beans or broccoli or whatever it is you thought was valuable, but I am saying I'm full and I do want something else afterwards that's, that we consider sweet. But why is that? Is it because that dynamic was set up? early on to say that you can't have sweet until this, almost like you can't go out and play until you finish the worksheets. Yes. It's the same. You know, so these, and yeah. these rewards and consequences or rewards and punishments, they're, um, it's so important to break those down. And you just highlighted a couple really important things here because the, the question of what are we so afraid of, it stems from a sense of control. And what we need mm. to do is, you know, step the early steps in this process and th- that I support people with is first of all, acknowledging your food story because understanding 
your relationship with food now is all the decades that have come before this and the influence that you Mm -hmm. had in your home of origin, the influence you had from teachers, the influence you had anywhere out in the world, right? Depending on what stage of life you're in now, like that includes travels that you've done, being in different cultures and experiencing food differently, right? There's there's a food story there of times when you've had a more positive experience with food and times when you've had a more negative experience with food. And we have to honor that because that is where, that is embedded in that is where the food rules and the food shoulds come from. Mm-hmm. And part of that is like Instagram. Part of that is podcasts, right? Like mm-hmm. we are right here having this conversation, sharing what we feel about this topic and how we can best support people. But this is a source of, th- this is part of someone's food story. This is part of someone's, what what's influencing their food rules and their food shoulds. And it comes from the pediatrician. It comes from blogs. It comes from um you know, memes that you see out there, infographics, someone you hear, you're on the playground or you're out, you know, at a homeschooling event or whatever you're doing and you hear other people talking about what they feed their kids and you observe what someone's, you know, a child opens up their lunch and you look at that and you compare that to what your child is having and then there's a story that plays, right? Mm -hmm. Every one of these things are part of the food rules and the food shoulds. And we do need to have a really good understanding. I I encourage people that I work with to make like a running list of those. And Mm -hmm. then what we need to do is we need to ask, is that true? Like, do I really believe that? And and Mm -hmm. why do I believe that? that? How is that relevant to me and my family right now? And that's where we start to be really critical thinkers and feel into what actually feels right in the body, which we can get to, and like how we actually tune in with the body on this information. And then, you know, you said the piece about a child being full at a meal, right? That's a rule. We, we, someone, someone told us we've been influenced somehow that you need to eat certain things before other things. So we need to break that down for ourselves and come into the place of where is that true, right? I I personally don't see as much in like this day and age with the people that I work with where they're saying, finish your plate. I think that was a little bit more when, Mm -hmm. when we were younger and then having dessert. But what I do encounter is this rule about that, that a child needs to taste Mm. food. You need to have three bites or you need to taste it X number of times. And that is one that you know, is also worth challenging and asking, like, mm-hmm. is that true? What does it mean? What does it mean to tell someone that they have to put something in their mm. mouth and, and then be able to decide, do they like it or not? And what is the experience, right? And and I, I've shared this story a few times where my son made a snack for himself one time and he wanted me to taste it. And I just at that moment didn't prefer that. I didn't want to be eating that. It didn't look interesting to me. And he was taking the food and basically putting it near my mouth and saying, mama, taste it. You have to taste it. And that's not something I've ever said, but for some reason he was coming up with that and he was just putting it Mm. at my lips. And I did not enjoy Mm -hmm. that experience Mm -hmm. at all. That felt like just a lot of pressure. It just, it was, it was all things Mm -hmm. negative for me. And so we have to really think about, you know, how can we make food be inviting? And and so much of that goes beyond the what yeah. of the food. Because what we are indoctrinated with 
is diet culture. And there's like diet culture on one end and then there's wellness culture Mm -hmm. on another. And in this day and age, most people I work with are taking both of those heavy dogmatic, you know, lists and shoulds and rules and now putting them together. And that's where navigating food feels like such a chore and so impossible Mm -hmm. because, you know, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was going to say when we were talking about the message that we pick up along the way, you've got also epigenetics, which plays into sort of our our origin stories of our parents and our grandparents and so forth. But then when you said the thing about asking someone to put something in their mouth, it re- that's so profound. It really is. And it's not even like I haven't thought of that, but just really sitting here and thinking about that, it is because uh, I am such a fan of uh, supporting my children. Uh, do, to, to do whatever they want with their bodies. Like, do you want to hug somebody? Sure. Go ahead and mm-hmm. hug somebody. Do you want to cut your hair? Yes. Cut your hair. Do you not want to cut your hair? Okay. That's fine I too. I love these examples. And, and yeah. And so the idea that for some reason, food and any anything related to your body and body autonomy all of a sudden goes out the window, right. it's really- Well, it's, 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 really it's also food specific. <laughs> that's the thing that I find a lot. So- Families will ha- like may have the if you want to cut your hair, cut your hair. If you you know you get to wear what you want to wear, you can you know whatever those things are. But when it comes to food, it just goes into this totally mm-hmm. different bucket for people because there's so many rules mm-hmm. and shoulds about it. And you know when you to getting back to the question of what am I afraid of? What is the underlying fear? And that's something that is a question that I ask early on when I start working pe- with people. And it's it's usually about health. It's usually about nutrition. And, and sometimes what comes in is I want my child to be like thin or mm-hmm. what someone might say at a healthy weight. You know, there's some of that, that kind of diet culture that comes into it as well. But it's mostly about I want my child to be healthy. And since my child is not eating what I consider to be enough vegetables, I'm really concerned. And this is just a, for instance, although it's a pretty common one, um, you know, I'm concerned that they are not going to be healthy. I'm concerned that they're going to get sick. I'm concerned that they're not going to have good energy, right? Like there's all of these things, but it's such a hyper focus on my child Mm -hmm. is not eating enough vegetables or my child is not eating enough protein or whatever it might be. And so then it just puts this like pressure cooker on this on just the what of the food without then we you know then we take a step back and we ask okay are, how are we making this inviting what is the what is the environment like in the kitchen what is it like for you mom or for you dad what is your relationship with food here what is your child observing how are you modeling certain things you know what is the actual system for food prep in your home because if there is no system, if it's basically just like a free-for-all every time or it feels just totally, you know, groundless, like you don't you don't feel like you have a good understanding of what you're doing, then every single meal, every single e- eating opportunity feels like pushing a boulder up a hill. And how am I going to get there? How am I going to figure this out? Mm-hmm. And then again, the child witnesses that energy around it. For so many parents that I work with, food is either 
you know, it feels like an interruption to the day. It feels like yet another thing they have to do. It feels like um, oftentimes, again, stereotypes, stereotypically, but I see this a lot for moms. It's the, it's an afterthought. They're sort of like eating the scraps or the leftovers, either literally or figuratively, but they're, they're generally resigned Mm -hmm. to what they feel like is appropriate for the kids or what the kids just will eat like and and that selection tends to get more narrow and more narrow and more narrow over time and they're just basically going along with what mm. they think their kids will eat and then here she is over here here's mom who has lost all joy in food has no interest is you know coming into a more and more negative relationship with food over these years when when I and you know when I get back to what is the fear or on the flip side of that what is your ultimate goal for what you want for your children they want a child who can grow into having a joyful and confident and you know trusting relationship with food that they know what food feels good in their bodies they know how to nourish themselves they know how to take care of themselves and if that's the vision that's the value that's the goal but it is totally incongruent mm-hmm. with the way that they're living because our culture has told us that food that food is is a chore and that food is hard to manage and that food is you know that food for kids mm-hmm. like all the memes and all the reels and all the whatever right around how challenging it is to feed children and i'm just here to say that it it really um it it can be a lovely experience right. for the whole family just like you don't have to push the boulder up the hill on math worksheets, right? Like we can we can experience math in a million different ways. We can experience science in a million different mm-hmm. ways. We can experience reading in a million different ways. We can experience food in, in a million different ways. Yeah. Well, and, and nutrition. I, yes. And I, I do that. It, it's so important to put food into that same category with everything else that we feel very strongly in supporting our children to follow their interest. And same with, with their food food interest. And, um, you know, there's the famous uh, quote, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Yes. And I, I do think that we are in an amazing time of information, which also has the negative consequence of being overload. And yeah. we get so many different ways of looking at food that it's like, well, which one's right for me? What is my body type? What What is my personality? How should I, you know, should I do keto? Should I do fasting? Should I, totally. you know, all the different choices to the point where I know as far as the stress is concerned, as um as I've seen in, in families, and I know I experienced it earlier on when my children were a bit younger, you you kind of feel like a short order cook because mm-hmm. you're not making one meal that everyone can eat. You're making things for you know specific appetites or specific uh, taste buds. And um, you know when you're when you're married, you've got two different food stories coming together that yes. then influence the children and also set up these different examples of what, what food looks like, you know, who's cooking, who's preparing, who's shopping, um, who spends more time thinking about food, who spends less time. And, um, so as far as, as far as the health side of things go, I feel like, you know, we're also unique and this idea, particularly with, you know, when government entities coming in and saying this is the food pyramid and this is what the plate should look like. And this sort of one size fits all idea is 
I think not very healthy. (laughs) Um, And so like you said, a million different ways to look at food. So can you give us a couple of possible examples of how, so let's think about a family who has a couple of young kids and maybe one has a special diet restrictions or considerations because of some health issue. How would you address that? Sure. Um, it seems to be my specialty to work with families who have oh. <laughs> a lot of different food needs and where they, it gets it gets pretty complicated, right? And then what often mm-hmm. happens is the parents are just like, this is this is miserable. I don't even care. You know, like you they end mm-hmm. up just throwing in the towel and we don't need to get to that point. So yes, okay. it is not uncommon. But as you said, two if there's a if it's a two-parent household, there's different food stories there. Um what I recommend when it comes to, well, even before we get to mealtime, is really getting into the setup of a kitchen, the setup of food in your home, so that as it is age appropriate and developmentally appropriate for your unique children, that there can be the most amount of autonomy around Mm. access to food, uh, being able to get involved in the kitchen. Because again, it's it's there's many things that come before the actual meal time that creates an inviting experience. For most families, what I see is that the more children can be engaged, the more children can have autonomy, the more children have an understanding of what's basically going to be on their plate, what's going to be on the table, the better. And that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? If you were to come to mm-hmm. a table and just see this food here, and then the expectation is that you just eat that food that someone else decided is what they wanted to make, that doesn't really feel inviting, right? Like when we go to restaurants, mm-hmm. I mean, everyone's, you know, you may go to a restaurant where you say like, chef's choice, you cook for me. But if you have food intolerances like I do, I can't do chef's choice. I need to be able to mm-hmm. sub this and sub that and choose what I'm getting on a menu. And that's what makes the experience inviting for me. So we want to, we want to, take that step back, take that like 10,000 foot view and look at the different pieces that are going on there. And then when it comes to actually being at the table for a meal or for an eating opportunity, it's it's about always having one thing that you know suits each person, right? There has mm-hmm. to be what some people call the safe food. I feel like that adds a layer of, you know, it can it can feel kind of scary that way, but just something that would be inviting. Do you know, I know that my child likes sweet potatoes. This this child over here likes sweet potatoes. This child over here will always eat whatever, you know, and you just make sure that those things are on the table and that they can go with the meal. In general, I really like the model of sort of do it yourself or, you know, construct your meal on your plate meal ideas. So that could be making, oh, I love that one. yeah, like that could be, mm-hmm. that could be yeah. tacos, that could be burgers, that could be um, wraps of any kind. It can be, um, we did on Friday night, we did make your own kind of sushi type of dinner. So I had, mm-hmm. I had um, some sushi rice, I had a little bit of miso soup, there were some cut up carrots, there was some cucumber, there were some sweet potatoes I roasted. And they were all, and there was some sesame seeds, just like in a jar on the table for sprinkling on top. There's a little bit of soy sauce, right? Like different things and different ways that that each individual can customize their own food. Like if you know Mm -hmm. that there's a one pot meal, there's a stew or a soup or a chili or a chicken dish or whatever it might be that is just a winner for your family, great, go for it. But in general, Mm -hmm. it's really nice to be able to have different things on the table 
And this doesn't have to be overwhelming. You're really just taking out like a couple condiments from the fridge, something to sprinkle on top, something that is like a base, you know, you kind of are working with mm-hmm. similar things. And, you know, if you look at my my mealtime in my home, it's a very similar look and feel over and over again. So it might be sliced sweet potatoes that can be the the thing that we can spread something on or put a little like burger slider on top of, or last night we did, um, we did like a, a braised turkey that we shredded. So there was just some shredded turkey and that shredded turkey can then be used. It can be used in a sandwich. It can be put on a salad. It can be thrown into a bowl of soup. It can be put in a wrap, right? It's just the, mm-hmm. thinking about food in ways that are versatile. And then also it, provides a greater opportunity for leftovers versus like mm. something that went on a plate and then gets thrown away. And this is this is yeah. a model that I go into a lot more detail in a program I have in a workshop that I run called the Joyful Family Meal, where we really get into like, how do you work with these pieces and all the pieces that come before it? But there is an mm-hmm. essential piece here that is that the that the parents are not plating the food for the children. And again, if you have a baby, if you you have a child that prefers that, right? But in general, it's an invitation Mm -hmm. for people to take, everybody in the family can take what they want from the options available. Mm -hmm. And then going back to what you were saying earlier around like, you have to finish your plate and, you know, kind of those rules. I like to encourage the people that I work with to think of it as more of of a sequence, right? It's not that you, it's not that a dessert is a reward for eating a meal. It's that, like, I'll tell you what we do in my home. If my son does not eat anything that has like protein in it or something that I, that is like what he, and and he will use this word, like something that he feels is like healthy or nourishing or makes him, makes him feel more full or anything like that. He's not going to then go have something like, like, let's say we're out and about. This is not as relevant for us at dinner time, but, um, but let's say we're out somewhere and he hasn't eaten any of his like proteiny foods, and then he wants mm-hmm. to get ice cream or he wants to have like a sweet something somewhere. I will say to him, I've noticed that you haven't had any food with protein recently, and then and we have a conversation about blood sugar. And my son is only six; he's almost seven. And this is where I mm-hmm. want to encourage families to get into more of like a body-wise conversation. And we can talk about that for a few minutes, you know, after this part. But it's it it's something that we shy away from giving our kids this knowledge about their bodies and then we hyper-focus on the food. So yeah. in a meal, if you if you notice that your child is exhibiting like behaviors or it looks like their blood sugar is really tanked and they're not eating anything at dinner, and if you think the meal is inviting and that there's definitely things that they could be eating, and then they want to have like some cookies after that, that's an opportunity there where you can talk about like what happens in the body and how that might feel when that child is going to sleep and their their blood sugar you know is not really regulated. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of ways that we can work with that, but with the different mm-hmm. food needs mm-hmm. in a family, what I find works best is really being able to allow each person to customize their food. And then the yeah. beauty that comes from that is that every person does it differently. 
And so what happens is like, and because I get to do that from my plate as well, right? Like I sit down to the meal and Mm -hmm. I'm ready to nourish myself. Everything is there. I make sure that I don't have to be the short order cook. I'm not up and down at the table. When I sit down, I want to be able to eat my meal. So what often happens is then I will like make this beautiful plate. And I really encourage people to do that, right? We eat what we see first, right? We use all of our senses in our food. And then my son will often look over and see, oh, mama, that looks beautiful. I want to do what you're doing, right? Yeah. So it, it, mm-hmm. takes, it, it takes being able to customize. And, and my plate always looks different from my husband's and always looks different to my son's. When we have people over and it's the same kind of thing, everybody's plate looks different. Yeah. And I think it's so important to model that behavior. Um, also showing what the possibilities are that helps children is when they're younger, because they're paying attention to us. They mimic us, you know, they follow in our footsteps. And so there's the the modeling, the um, showing the different possibilities. And then also when you said something about being involved in the cooking and the home yeah. and making your, your kitchen more inviting, I remember having... Um, their smaller cups that the children used when they were younger accessible. And then, you know, they could get in and out of the cabinets as needed and taking things that normally would be on the top of the refrigerator shelves to the bottom so they could open up and become more um, independent and grab things that they wanted. When we did the same thing as far as like putting um, bins with their snacks lower down in the pantry. And um, I always encourage my kids just to go and interact with whatever it is that they needed and if they needed my help to always ask. And I was constantly available to make food for them. And I sometimes when they were younger, especially and busy and running around with their friends, and I would recognize that, oh my gosh, they really haven't eaten much today. And I know they're really busy and excited. So I would just offer it out directly or I would just throw food on the table. No questions, just like start chopping up vegetables or fruit or throw some things in a bin or a a bowl and put it on the table. And then sure enough, they'd come in and they'd graze and they'd keep going. And I, I do know that we all have our own sort of eating patterns. And I've noticed, especially with kids, that they just are so intuitive and they know what works for them and what Mm -hmm. doesn't. And they also know to graze a little bit and keep going and then they'll come back. And then there are times when they have where they will sit and they are just really, really ravenous and they want to have a whole meal from beginning to end, you know, and where they're not getting up at all. Um, but, you know, as far as the health piece and ensuring like blood sugars and things like that, it's it's funny you mention it because, um, and, and maybe I told you this privately, but my daughter um, at age 11 was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes mm-hmm. and it really threw our world sure. upside I'm down sure. because- we had never had that in any of our family. I mentioned my mom and dad were type two and I've learned so much about that ever since um, her diagnosis, but what we, and it's been, it's been interesting. And, um, you know, I have had to do a lot of reflection on myself because as a child who was sick when I was younger, you know, my, my most important goal in life was to be sure my children didn't have to experience. (laughs) And so then when it happened, it's like, what are you kidding me? And, um, but what I found to be so amazing about her experience specifically is how much she took ownership over it. And it was even in the hospital when, when the nurses and everybody was, you know, spending all this time looking at her and talking to her and engaging with her about what it means to be type one. And here's some resources and let's look at this and let's read that. 
And she was sort of like, what is the big deal? And then we had friends and family who wanted to come visit her. And she was like, I'm not, I'm not dying. Oh my goodness. (laughs) You know, but it was that moment of realization for me as her mom that life as we knew it has definitely changed, but it doesn't have to be as significant as my mind is telling me it has to be right now. You know, like I, I, it was an overwhelming feeling and I had to get adjusted to it, but even her in the hospital, like this is two days after diagnosis. She was in the ICU. Wow. And then, yeah, it was wild. And then um, and then she was in the hospital one more day. And they wanted to keep her another day. But we were like, please, can we just go home? We got it. We're good. We, we understand everything. But the nurses were even telling her, and this was the specialist, you don't have to change anything about the way you eat. You just give yourself insulin. And even her at age 11 looked at me and said, that makes zero sense. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. And and we we've had so many discussions over the years and she's much more self-sufficient now and um and then there have been times where I feel like, you know, I might ask her a question and I'm like, "Listen, I just need you to tell me if I'm being too much. If I if you don't need me asking you about where you are or what you need, please be honest. I I just don't want to overwhelm you." She's like, "No, mom, sometimes I like you checking in on me because I do get a little bit like I stop thinking about it and just kind of go along my day and um, so it's, you know, it's something we have to think about all the time yeah. and be really, really conscious of, um, the choices that we have available for her. And then of course, what we have in the world. So there's been a few things that we realized that really her body just does not like, and she pretty much, it's better for her not to do it kind of the same way that, you know, we would feel if, you know, if there was a certain activity that we exactly. just knew our bodies didn't like, yeah. um, and I was going to say too about specializing or not specializing, but um, um, being the example for our kids as far as like how we eat or asking them questions or, or pointing out things that we notice, you know, we, we would do that if they were tired or we would do that if, you know, we noticed that they were pushing themselves a little too much and they're not sleeping. And so they're waking up the next day feeling kind of groggy or getting really cranky. Um, so you're right. I think we get sometimes a little too sensitive about mm-hmm. food that we won't we wouldn't want to say anything because we might push them over the edge right. or something. But that's a big. It's not the case. Yeah, like we the conversation. It, it's just that it's a conversation. It's a matter of are you asking because you are concerned and you're trying to get information and you're curious, or are you doing it because you're being judgmental? Right. So if you can discern those two, then I think. It, it just it just is a conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a big piece because a lot of families, part of their fear, you know, it comes, it's it's about health, as I was saying before. And then another part of the fear is that I don't want my child, I don't want, people say to me, I don't want to give my child an eating disorder. And if you're listening mm. to this, and if this is something that is, um, that is concerning to you, I want to make it clear that you cannot give your child an eating disorder. You can absolutely mm. work on and optimize and you know do some inner work and some reflection and a lot of what we're talking about here to come into a really loving, confident, and joyful relationship with food for yourself and gain tools to model that and to create a home around that. You can learn a lot more about how the body works. I find that most people I work with, that there's just because of the world we live in, because we tend to outsource this to doctors or Mm -hmm. whatever it is, we don't really learn about how the body works. We don't really understand, well, what affects blood sugar? We don't really understand what 
supports optimal digestion. We don't really understand like, well, what is anti-inflammatory or different, different terms? Like why might something matter more than something else? We generally don't have a good body-wise educational level, right? And Mm -hmm. so these are things that you can absolutely do. And these are things that you can support your child with. But having an eating disorder comes from many different places. One of those things often may be the influence in the home of origin, but there are many different pieces there. And so the Mm -hmm. best you can do is provide a safe space, a safe and loving environment for your children to learn about their bodies, for your children to feel confident in how their bodies work, for your children to not to as much as possible, right? We can't have attachment to the outcome, but creating an environment where your children don't feel like their body is betraying them, where they are not afraid mm. of their bodies, right? And and that right. is a piece that I feel, you know, I think that there's so many wonderful things that modern science and, and Western medicine and everything helps support our bodies with when it comes to prevention and when it comes to really understanding the working, the inner workings of the body, I do feel like it is an area where we tend to fail because like I said before, we outsource it. So we're, we're given Mm -hmm. the message that it's not up to us to, be our greatest advocates, that it's not up to us to be the expert on our bodies, that it's not up to us to listen to, oh, that doesn't really feel good. Or like the same way you said that your daughter Mm -hmm. had this understanding at age 11 that food should probably be an integral piece to the puzzle of of supporting her type 1 diabetes, right? Right. Like my son Mm -hmm. has known for a couple years that when he eats cheese, he gets constipated. We see it like the mm-hmm. same, you know, he eats cheese or what, you know, at, on day one and day two, he is not pooping. We see that every time, right. right? And he typically has regular bowel movements. So he knows that. And what that means is that he can make educated decisions around it. And I, as his parent for mm-hmm. an almost seven-year-old, can support him and say, hey, Zeke, I'm noticing that you're eating a lot of cheese. What do you think? What do you think that's going to feel like in your body? And then he'll say, "Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I'm probably I'm probably not going to poop and then my stomach's going to hurt and I'm, you know, I'm not going to feel good, right? Like he'll say that. Right. And then mm-hmm. he gets to make that decision. And that might mean that the next day I'm sitting in the bathroom with him and he has a stomach ache and he's saying, "I shouldn't have eaten all that cheese. Like this yeah. is what happens." <laughs> and so he just is learning that and he's having an understanding of what happens because it's real life. It's really based on what's ha- what happens in his body. He knows yep. that there's certain things that I don't eat. And there's things that I don't eat that he does eat. There's some things that I don't eat that like he also doesn't eat, right? Like there's things that his father eats that we don't eat. Like there's just and and that it that can be totally fine as long as it's coming from a place of it's like, well, I know my body. Mhm. Yeah. Well, and you you know, we're talking a lot about specific foods and and um you know, the, the rules we place around them. But I also think a lot, and like you mentioned earlier with the mind body connection and the spiritual aspect of our, our being and how we can place a positive attitude and a, um, a thankfulness and a gratefulness to any of the foods that we do consume in order to create that sort of positive energy around it so that we don't have this, 
negative attitude about food in general, but more like I am grateful that I have the opportunity to eat this meal. And I'm grateful that I can, you know, sit quietly in a space outside and, and eat this apple or, you know, have these carrots or even chips. I mean, you know, if we want to create a positive attitude about eating, it really does have to include everything. And even if it's things that we know will eventually come back to get us, you know, like the cheese for your son and for us, it's gluten Mm -hmm. or for my daughter, especially, um, I still want her to enjoy it when she's having it. Yeah. (laughs) And, and so, um, there is that energy that we can bring to the table, if you will, before we even consume anything. Absolutely. And that's something that we also do as is part of the joyful family meal kind of methodology is that there's when we sit down to a meal, I will always just like kind of put my hands around my plate or on my plate and I take a couple mm. deep breaths. I close my eyes and I take a couple deep breaths. And I I've explained to my son many times that it helps my like that I feel really good when my body comes into more of a relaxed state before I eat and that that really helps support digestion. And then I'll say to him sometimes that, you know, I'm noticing that you have a lot of big energy and your system, like I can see your heart, I can you know, feel your heart is racing really fast and you have a lot of big energy. Do you want to go play for a few minutes and then you can maybe come back to the table? Or would you like to, would you like to take a couple deep breaths with me so your system is a little bit more calm? Or we'll talk about sometimes the pace at which he's eating mm-hmm. and what it, you know, so, and we, and he, we, we have a book where we've talked about the digestive system. So he knows all of the places where his food Food is going to go after he chews his food. But we talk about, well, why is it so important to chew your food a lot, right? These are all things that we can that we can talk about and we can model in really lovely ways to come into the mealtime experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I love how you mentioned about the excitement because we talked about stress and anxiety yes. and how that affects digestion, but so does excitement and, and you know, the, a lot of energy. If you're wild, and not wild, but, you know, it's children, like yeah. big energy, excited and happy and, and joyful, and they just want to keep moving, that's an important piece to recognize as well. Maybe it's not quite time for them to sit and settle and actually digest their food, even though it is for you. So it's okay if they don't sit with you at the exact same time every day. And that's that other piece about the idea of putting parameters around food times and food, um, uh, who, who joins together when they eat. And I know with us as a homeschooling family, and we have homeschooled for so long, there was a part of me earlier on that felt like I was doing a disservice to my kids by not sitting down every single evening and having a meal together. Right. But the more I started realizing it, I was like, we spend so much time together that the evening is actually when we don't hang out. Yes. And that's okay, you know, that we can kind of pick and choose when we want to eat. And sometimes that might be together at the table. Sometimes that might be in the living room while we're watching a show mm-hmm. for us specifically. And and that's okay because we're doing so much together prior yeah. to that evening meal. Yeah. And that's part of the de-schooling piece. Like the de-schooling the mm-hmm. meal time is there's, you know, there's a lot of research that's been done. And actually, to be clear, it's not actually a lot of research. It's like a few studies that have just gotten a lot of press um, mm-hmm. around okay. the importance of 
of dinner time, of family dinner time, and all of the things that happen with family dinner time that are so important for modeling eating behaviors, for families coming together, that that there's things that will be said at the dinner table that won't be said otherwise, and why it's so important for everybody to sit down at the dinner table. And of course, that's going to be based on a more conventional model of what their mm. daytime rhythm looks like. But, right. you know, Something that I that I think is really important to recognize is that food and connection with others do not always have to be coupled. So sometimes mm-hmm. we have food without connection with others. Sometimes we have connection with others, and where food is not part of them, part of the picture. And sometimes that's the two so, of them coming to come together and being that's able. Such a great distinction yeah. too. I really like that. Yeah. I mean, I have times where I eat by myself and I want to eat by myself. Mm-hmm. I don't really want anybody else yeah. around. You don't, you don't always have to be in conversation with people every single time you're eating something mm-hmm. and noticing, like being able to observe and notice what the rhythm is for people in your family yeah. and being able to come into it. And, you know, the thing with dinner, is the the primary problem for most families is that it is the time of day where there is the highest, like everybody's tired, right? You have the least amount of bandwidth. It's Mm. the end of the day. There's all these things that you need to get done within some short period of time before bedtime, right? Again, speaking more about like younger children, maybe Mm -hmm. 10 and under in this example, but where parents then want to be able to just have their own time before they go to bed. So there's this like, okay, we got to do dinner. We got to brush teeth. We got to do bath. We got to do reading. We have to do songs, like whatever the, the rhythm is for your nighttime routine that you're trying to pack in. And everybody feels that pressure, Mm -hmm. right? We have the least bandwidth and the highest expectation. It's the time where it's it's also the time where most families, again, traditionally uh, based on kind of more older rules, assume that that's where like the nutrition is. Like what is the, the perfect family meal and what does that look like? And, you know, the body doesn't discriminate. Mm-mm. You can take in nutrition any time of day. <laughs> yeah. You can, you know, you can, you can make if it, does it make more sense for breakfast to be that meal where you have more of like a sit down, we haven't been together for hours and hours, you know, Maybe that looks like breakfast. Maybe that looks like lunch picnics in the park or on a nature trail or, and again, more for homeschooling families. But you have the option to to do dinner three times a week. Mm-hmm. And other times dinner can be more of like a snack board right. that is like while you're playing a game together or watching a movie or whatever it might be, right? Like there is – if the goal is coming into a confident and trusting and joyful empowered relationship with food that can look so many different ways mm-hmm. but that but that sense of knowing is the thing that your children will take into the long term yes that's absolutely that's the part that is the you know that's the long term role like the the relationship with food is a long game we mm-hmm. have it from the day we're born until the day we die mm-hmm. we cannot not engage with it it's yes. a must so you know, it's it behooves us to to be able to create. And again, this is this is seasonal. This is in like the the seasons of life. This will continue to change. But the how of how you do food, you know, you can you can come into a positive relationship with the how that really goes the distance. As you said before, right? There's there's different bodies. There's different. We all have unique and a different food story. We all have different food needs. And as we change. Right. Like I can think of probably 
15 different times in my life when, you know, my body was different and my food needs were different. My diet looked different. So when you said before about like keto and paleo and plant-based and all of those mm-hmm. things, that's just, that's the what, that's like the detail. And, and that can continue mm-hmm. to change because the body is a great place to experiment, right? Like you can, you can experiment with trying on different foods, but if the, if the relationship, if, if you trust that your body will always give you the information you need, right? Your body will give you symptoms. Your body will give you signs emotionally, physically. You'll get information about how something feels. So that's the part that we want to cultivate early on for our children so that, and we have to do that for ourselves in order to do that. But that's the part that, you know, Mm -hmm. stands the test of time. Regardless of what health concern comes up, regardless of what a person is eating, being able to trust the body and listen to the body is is what we're really getting at here. It absolutely is, and I just I I love this conversation because it it really it feels like one that does not get enough attention in this way. It gets the attention in all the other specifics about the amount yeah. and the type and the and the when to eat, but not in the awareness side of it. Where if we are the type of people who really want to be conscientious of how our children interact with information and how they interact with others and how they interact with themselves, then doesn't it make sense to pull this piece into it as well so that they can be become the owners of their bodies and the owners of their, their future and the path that they want to create for themselves and knowing that they were able to interact with something that is as important as food um, in, in this more authentic way from as early as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, food is just, just like you said, interacting with people, interacting with learning, interacting with the world. Food is something that we engage with, just Mm -hmm. like we engage with all these other things. And so it just makes sense that we would want to engage with food in a way that feels authentic to who we are and that serves our bodies well. You know, there's, there's a lot of those elements of, again, like what makes food inviting for an individual. Mm -hmm. Well, you have given us so much to think about, and I appreciate oh, you and your time. You. And I know you have other fun things planned today. So if <laughs> there's you. a couple of things that you could just say to anybody listening as sort of a wrap up to, you know, if if they're if they're listening and they're thinking, hmm, okay, I've really struggled with food and I didn't realize how much I struggled until I listened to this. <laughs> um, sure. Or maybe my children are and we've created kind of a negative sort of back and forth and almost like a like a push-pull dynamic, what would be like Mm -hmm. just a couple of things that you could throw out for parents to consider and to move forward with? Yeah. I would say the two things to start with are to just honor, whether it's writing out or talking out or just, you know, whatever it might be for you, what your food story is, how you got to today in your relationship Mm. with food. Because most people don't really write that out or, you know, think about it in that way. And so take the time to do that. And then the other piece is just observe. The inclination for so many of us is to go right to a solution, right? So that's where you were saying like when to eat, what to eat, what should the plate look like? That's all solution-based and that's all just a detail. And that might work today and then it's not going to work tomorrow. That's why you're still always searching for the next thing. So just take some time to observe non-judgmental with like a Mm. beginner's mind, as they say, in kind of yoga teachings, like as if you're, as if you're just like an anthropologist 
out in the wild, observing birds or whatever you might be and just being like, oh, that's interesting. Look at that one. How, how are they doing that? And now they're, you know, whatever you might see and just observe your children, observe yourself, observe your partner, like just observe the food behaviors for a solid week without making any changes. And what you'll notice is that at similar times of day, certain things happen. There's a certain inclination that one child has and another one doesn't. You'll notice a little bit more about your own cravings or you know, when I'm feeling this way, I tend to be craving that food. Just write it down or log it in some way. Just observe without fixing. That That is the starting point for all of this work because this the, – the, the medicine in this, what what helps the healing process of this and helps you come into a joyful and confident and loving relationship with food is not a list of rules. It's mm-hmm. what works for your unique family in this season of life. So when I work mm-hmm. with people, I'm always at, I'm always saying, well, tell me about your daughter. What's she like? What is she into? When you think like, oh, that is so missy. Like, what does that mean? You know? And so you get to know the people and then you start to understand oh, well, that makes sense that that's how they would interact with food. So just let yourself sit back and observe a little bit before before trying to implement even some of the solutions we talked about here around like the joyful family meal system. Just observe. Yeah. Well, and that is so key. And that's actually one thing I 100% recommend to families who reach out about education and unschooling. It's like get a notebook, get a notebook on each of your kids, write down what they like, what do they gravitate towards, what do they enjoy the most, what lights them up, what do they not like, what do you see that they participate in and then they stop participating in and because they just or they've lost interest and the same exact thing. So that's a wonderful idea. It's the same. Um, I never personally never thought about doing that for food. I just never did. Yeah, because we, we, t- we just tend to put food in this other kind of I don't know, like have to mm-hmm. bucket or like that there isn't that there we we for some reason, I don't think anybody articulates it, but we tend to not think of it as wait, how can we get creative? How can we create a sacred space around eating? How can you know, like we think about that when we go to beautiful restaurants or when we travel, but we don't think that there's ways that we could just invite that special element into our own homes, even on a daily basis. Right. We do it around parties and things like special occasions, but we make make the nighttime or the day-to-day very mundane and it doesn't necessarily have to be. And of course, sometimes it's just perfunctory. It just is what it is. And we've got to, we've got to have breakfast and have food and, you know, especially if our day's busy, but it wouldn't hurt for us to get a little bit more curious and a little bit more mindful of it. So thank you. And can you just let everybody know where they can find you? in the world of social media. Yes. um, I am pretty much only on Instagram. So it's just my full name, Dina Barcella on Instagram. Um, And same website, uh, dinabarcella.com. And then, you know, two things that are available to you right now. One is something that is a system I developed around snacks because I know how difficult and how much of a strain (laughs) that can be all day long, feeling like you're a snack vending machine for your kids, constantly asking for snacks. And so it's a way for your children and for you, for everybody in the family to create connection with food so so that it's accessible, it's empowering. It's a whole system for how snacks come into the home, how they get put away, how they are labeled or made available, and how that suits the individual needs of everybody in your family. So you can grab that for free um, in my Instagram link or on my website, and it's called The Snack Hack. And that's just 
a free download and then a series of emails to just help support coming into it. And, and I think that that is a great step one because mm-hmm. snacks are something that m- most families interact with and that will start to help shift the relationship. And then the other piece is the Joyful Family Meal Workshop. So that's something that is also available now and that's just on my website. And that's a one-hour-long workshop. It's a it's a video with a really great handbook and guidebook to help you with some of those probing questions and some mm-hmm. of the things we talked about here, but goes a little bit deeper into mealtime. Well, I wish I knew you when my children were younger because oh. I'll tell you, <laughs> there's so many Thank things you. that you've said that I was like, oh, gosh, I didn't do that or I could have done that. My daughter's favorite word was snack. We're like, I, mean, I need a snack. <laughs> it's like. It's never like it's never too late. Of course, you don't have it's not the same level right, of influence right. with bigger kids, but it's never too late to start. Like, this is I, I work with adults on this, right? It's mm. never too late to start creating a more just a more loving and trusting relationship with your body. Mm-hmm. It is never too late. It's never too late to model that. It's never too late to learn more about how your body works. It's never too late to grab a new cookbook and get inspired by some new ideas, right? Right. All of these things. You know, and and as kids get older and they come home to visit us, right? There's always an opportunity mm-hmm. for creating for creating that that piece. I think that's a wonderful way to to wrap up to just remember yeah. that it's a continuous process. It's not a one and done. It's not no. only when they're young. It just is forever. It's a forever relationship. It really is. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you'll be notified when new episodes are available. Also, check the show notes on all the ways to connect with Dina and how to access her free snack hack guide, as well as how to register for her joyful family meal video. And if you're not already following Let Him Go Barefoot on Instagram, come on over. Over the next week, I will be highlighting information from Stuart Brown's book, Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, and Invigorates the Soul. As always, stay curious, stay connected, and stay aware. Until next time.